Welcome to Uncommon Core, where we explore the big ideas in crypto from first principles. This show is hosted by Sue Zhu, the CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Three Arrows Capital, and me, Hasu, a crypto researcher and writer. Today, I'm sitting down with Anish Agnihotri, who is a research associate and colleague of mine here at Paradigm. Anish has a fascinating backstory from starting out as an entrepreneur at a really young age and later going very deep into skin trading, um, a skill that then transferred very well to today's NFT ecosystem. Um, in fact, we talk a lot about the NFT ecosystem and the structure of both the primary and the secondary markets in NFTs, how they work and how they are going to develop in the future. Anish also shared some very actionable advice with me on how to learn and how to build projects in crypto. Overall, we had a really deep and fascinating conversation, and I think you will enjoy it a lot. Uh, hey, hey, Anish, welcome so much to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Hasim. You are only 19 recently, uh, turned 19, but you have been in crypto longer than me and um, longer than most other people, I would, I would assume. So can you give us a bit of your background? So how did you find crypto? Like, what did you do in your life before? Sure. Yeah, I'll give you the, the two-minute summary. My name is Anish, of course. Nice to meet everyone. I'm a researcher at Paradigm. Uh, I moved to North America when I was four years old from India. And my father was a traveling consultant, which meant I moved from place to place a lot. Uh, by the time I was 11 or 12, I had went, you know, across 20 or 25 elementary schools, switching from one place to another. What that meant was that I started to use technology, my laptop that I would carry around everywhere as a way to stay connected with friends uh, and just be on the internet at all times. That was really beneficial for me, frankly speaking, growing up, uh, because it meant I got exposed to a lot of like the online communities, to Reddit, to Twitter really, really early on mm -hmm. uh, in my childhood. And when I was 10 or 11, decided I wanted to make some spare cash. You know, and as any kid at that age, you want to make some cash, you want to buy cool things that your friends are buying. And I figured I might as well do something, learn something out of it, and then make money. And for me, that was learning how to make websites. So I learned how to code from online places and then started to make websites for people on Reddit on places like r slash for hire. Now, as a place, as, as a kid, the only way to get paid really is places like PayPal. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I initially started with, where I would, you know, get 100, 200 bucks for each website. And that would be incredible. You know, 200 bucks for an 11-year-old is a crazy amount of money. And what happened, though, was every couple months I'd get banned from PayPal to the point where now I'm lifetime banned from PayPal and can't create an account for creating too many when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. uh, and what that quickly meant was I had to find another way to get paid. Because there was no way I was stopping programming and getting paid, but I could definitely move away from PayPal. Couldn't you have used um, your parents' account? So as a kid, part of it was I didn't want my parents to know that I was making money on the internet, right? In part because mm -hmm. it was, you know, it, it's very weird for a kid to be making money on the internet, in part because uh, they, I thought it might be like a distraction, right? Mm -hmm. They might think I wasn't doing schoolwork. Uh, I was spending, you know, my nights building websites for people on the internet, And they wouldn't let me. And so part of the motivation was I didn't want to tell my parents. I had to use a payment method that didn't require any identity. And that's where Bitcoin really came in the picture. So in 2014 or so uh, was when I first got into Bitcoin. It was right around when it was first blowing up on Reddit. And there were a bunch of tip bots and change bots. 
um, which was really beneficial for me because it meant that a lot of people on Reddit had exposure and that was the primary place where I found people to build websites for. So it was easy for me to get paid in Bitcoin. And so 2014, 2015, I built websites for people uh, getting paid in Bitcoin. 2016, I entered high school, took some of the money I had made making websites and bought graphics cards and decided I'll try mining. Uh, And so I bought six R9 280X graphics cards and set up a heater in my room for basically a year, um, which is a ton of fun, a great learning experience, got me into the Ethereum community early on. From there, decided, let me mix some of my passions, let me put programming and crypto together, went to a bunch of hackathons. Uh, Back then, Consensus had a huge presence in Toronto, where I lived, um, which meant that it was really easy to get access to people and learn from people uh, in the community at events. So joined Gitcoin in 2018, did a bunch of bounties, got to work with cool people, uh, and eventually found myself getting deeper and deeper in the crypto development rabbit hole. In 2019, for a brief period of time, uh, I went and interned at 1Password, uh, the consumer password management company, because I thought, you know, maybe there is something beyond crypto, and I should, you know, force myself to explore that. What I quickly realized, though, was that for me, there is nothing beyond crypto. I enjoy it far, far too much to do anything else. And so... Uh, I see it as a beneficial summer where I learned I definitely want to be doing crypto for the next, you know, five, 10 years of my life. Um, that following summer decided to get into the crypto space. Um, I applied for an internship at Polychain. Uh, and the way that I went about doing it was funny, actually. And it, it speaks to, I guess, the testament of crypto Twitter, where Naraj, who's a general partner at Polychain, had put out a tweet of how he had applied for a job to Snapchat in the 10th grade that I thought was fascinating. Uh, So I copied the same format and messaged it to him by Twitter. uh, And that's how the conversation got started and eventually found myself at Polychain that summer. uh, Do you remember what he said? Yeah, so I think if I pull up the message, it was something like he had sent three lines to Evan Spiegel at Snapchat in the 10th grade where he said like, hey, my name's Naraj, I'm the 10th grade, I can program with these languages and I'm not going to waste your time, but I'd love to, you know, have the chance to work at Snapchat. And so I tongue-in-cheek took the exact same format and basically sent him, hey, I'm Anish, you know, I'm a kid, and I think I was in the 11th grade then. Um, these are the programming languages. These are the cryptos that, that I've played around with and things I've built. Uh, won't waste your time, but I'd love to have the chance to work at Polychain. And that's how the conversation got started, um, which was fantastic. I'm really glad he took the chance. Um, so yeah, worked at Polychain that summer. I did six months on the research and investment team um, doing venture investment and research. And then six months, I spent more on-chain trading uh, and learning the ropes around that. And then after about a year at Polychain, I eventually found myself where I am today at Paradigm, uh, working with some super smart folks as an associate on the research team. What is the most memorable thing that you did at Polychain or your best learning experience? Sure. I think I always tell people that I don't enjoy investing because the biggest problem is when a team comes across the table, I don't want to give them, you know, a million dollars. I want to be on the on their side building with them. Yeah. And I think the thing, the working at venture funds in crypto is very different than working at venture funds in the conventional world where you do get to do that. It's the easiest way to get exposure to hundreds of teams and get to build with them day in, day out. So I think definitely my most memorable moments are the points where I helped, you know, build with a portfolio company and hopped into the code with them which I think is what I enjoy the most. And how did that shape your decision to join Paradigm as your next step? I think it was a big decision factor. I think Paradigm's known for helping portfolio companies very hands-on, whether that's you know Dan helping write the yield paper, the Uniswap papers, 
whether that's Dave shipping new primitives, Georgios helping ship code, Sam finding vulnerabilities and contracts and helping portfolio companies. I think for me, that was an easy decision to make where I realized there are already people who, you know, the way I like to think of research is you get paid to learn and you get paid to help with the learnings that you have. And I think that for me was the motivating factor where I wanted to keep learning. I wanted to learn surrounded by really smart people. And then I wanted to apply that learning. And so coming to Paradigm was an easy decision. Yeah, I would actually describe it in the very same way. How learning is like, has, is such a positive feedback loop, right? Right. You, you get rewarded so much for learning something new and, and um, you're making so many new connections over it, right? It's like, right, definitely. Your brain is expanding, but not just the brain in your body, but also sort of the second brain, the social brain, which right, is your, right. your network in crypto. How was it for you to, um, to write your first paper? How, how did that compare to like writing open source software? It's far harder. And uh, to be honest, I think writing code for me at least is far easier than writing words. Uh, and I think it's because code, there's a very strict de facto principle way of doing it, right? There's best practices of this is how things should be. Uh, and there's very little deviation that moves from there. And when I make projects, things that I've already learned, I can just apply them in the same way. I think writing is completely different. I think every paper, every essay, every word is different than the one before. Uh, and it requires a lot more creativity. So I think for me, it was a lot harder. I think there was a lot more thinking involved um, than coding. And, but maybe that's also because, you know, I'm not a writer by day job. So I think it's just harder to do something I'm not as familiar with. You know, it's curious, right? What if people could learn to write the way that they could learn to program? Because I'm, I, I'm struggling with the exact same thing, right? When, when I started writing, I was like, I was looking for the ropes, like really looking right. for them. Like, what are some ways that you can do things, some best practices, some almost like looking for templates um, that you can fill in. And I didn't find anything. Like I, mm. I followed up with all of the recommendations that people gave me for like, these are the books that like the, the, the people who are the best writers in the world, like here's like the advice that they give. And it was so unstructured and you could say I'm still, <laughs> I'm still looking for, you know, adding more structure. So it becomes less something creative and more like a, you know, like a craft almost like, uh, something that you can do, uh, even like when you're on your B game or C game, which I'm right. still struggling with, I would say. Same for me. Maybe we can learn together. <laughs> <laughs> um, so how would you describe your uh, job at Paradigm today? And just in terms of like how you divvy up your time? Sure. So I'm an associate on the research team, uh, which the way that I describe it to people is I'm the stupidest person at Paradigm, uh, which is fantastic because there's a lot to learn from everyone else. The way that I usually split my time is about 50-50. So 50% of my work is public open source contributions uh, to building things, learning things and applying them uh, and building resources that other people can use. Yeah. And then 50% of my work is more internal portfolio support and basically doing the same thing that I do publicly, but now applying those same skills and helping portfolio companies ship faster, build cool things and expand their uh, companies. So what, what motivates you to write so much open source software? I'm, I mean, I'm going to your website, um, anishagnihotri.com, and, you know, there's like 30 different uh, uh, GitHub repos. Um, so, like, why spend so much time, like, writing this software? I think it's two-part. I think the first is building code and then sharing it with people is the easiest way to learn. 
where for me, building open source projects is not just a way of, you know, sharing cool things that I'm doing, but it's a way for, it's almost like nerd sniping the smartest people or getting them really, really excited about an idea Mm -hmm. uh, and then learning from them. Um, And the best examples are, you know, places where I've built hacks that have taken me two or three days and it's gotten really smart people curious, great conversations started. And then I've learned a lot more from, you know, the conversations after the hack than the hack itself. So I think that's one big motivating factor of doing drops and building things. I think the second part is I'm very, very pro open source. Uh, and I think I attribute that to starting off early with Gitcoin, where I think the easiest way to collaborate, especially in crypto, is to be very open with what you're building, to share as freely as possible and to get people excited and involved um, and have that support. How do you feel like like we are holding up to that standard in crypto these days? It, to me, it feels like even two years ago, everybody would first put out an idea and then there would be like a period where everybody discusses it and then we would build it. Um, and nowadays it's more like projects constantly ship new products, but like they have been developed uh, behind closed door, basically. Do you feel like we are moving away from the open source approach? And how do you feel about that? I think there's definitely more privatization now than there was before, where there's companies of people, product builders coming together to build these things behind closed doors and then you know launching with a blast and shipping, hey, we've built this thing that we think you should be excited about. Mm. Versus, you know, just a couple of years ago, like you mentioned, it's like, you know, we'd go from research papers and things people were excited about to very initial implementations, to the community interacting, and then together, all of us building it up. I personally do like the open source nature better uh, because I think it's not only just an easier way to get product market fit and get community buy-in, but it's also just more fun that way, right? You get to build in public, you get to collaborate with others, and you never know what the benefits of that might be. On the other hand, though, I, I do see the benefit of the privatization that we've seen where I'm not a product developer, right? I don't work at one of a large crypto project building one of these things. So maybe my viewpoint is different. But on the other side, you could argue that by having it privatized, you can ship faster, right? You can have closed development cycles. Uh, You can have like this top-down hierarchy of building things, which means you can basically outpace many teams to building the same things. And it becomes almost like a race. Um, Of course, I can't tell what the best way is. I personally prefer open source, but maybe that's because I'm naive and I'm not a product developer working at a place like that. Yeah, I mean, maybe back in the day, the opportunity cost of releasing information was much lower than it is today, right? Where right. there's just the market is overflowing with cash and whoever can launch a certain product first is going to get a huge financial payoff. It's not just, it's not just like um, basically admiration from the community and like nerd sniping other nerds, <laughs> uh, which it used to be, and having really memorable and great conversations. Nowadays, you also have this financial element. I think that's much more dominating, I guess, how people build. Right. And it's almost cyclical in crypto, right? Where the, mm-hmm. with the bull and bear cycles, you'll see more innovation happen. And you'll also see, you know, more fast paced development to capitalize on the abundant capital. In the bear market. Right. In the bull market. Yeah. In the bull market. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's, let's take one, one thing that you built, um, which is party bit. Um, mm-hmm. I think one of the, I think one of the most memorable projects uh, that you did, um, can you walk us through that project from sort of the whole idea and all the way to the release? Sure. 
PartyBit is definitely one of my more favorite projects. Uh, the story behind it started when Dave White, who's my colleague at Paradigm, posted a thread on Twitter on a Friday night that said, hey, it's Friday night, let's design a mechanism together. And quickly after, he got a lot of great replies, of which one of them was from Dennis Nazarov at Mirror, who said, I'd like a way to pool together capital with my friends, pool together our ETH in a contract, and bid for NFTs together. And he dubbed the dub the idea party bid, where you're, you're parting together with pooled money and you're bidding on NFTs. Yeah. I saw this idea on Friday night and I thought, wow, this is really cool. This is something I'd like to build. And so that weekend, Saturday, Sunday, by Monday morning, I shipped the V0 of party bid contracts that let a bunch of addresses come together, pool ETH, and then bid on an NFT. And Monday morning, I released it on Twitter. Yeah. And there was great traction, of course. People loved it. And so I decided, let's take it a step further. Let's use this party bid to win an NFT. Mm -hmm. So a couple of days later, I had the opportunity to bid on an NFT by Colin and Samir, uh, who are two creator economy YouTubers. And so a friend and I pooled together capital, and we placed multiple bids from our party bid, and eventually we won the NFT. And this was like the first NFT won by party bid. Mm -hmm. We tweeted about it, and this got a lot of people really excited. I, I know I had mentioned the nerd sniping previously, that's, I think, the best benefit of these hacks, where you get people really, really excited about ideas once they see them, once they see like a very MVP stage in practice. Because of all the excitement, um, Dennis helped us do like a mirror crowdfund where we raised 25 ETH in about nine minutes to bootstrap a DAO that would help continue to build this V0 implementation into something that was bigger and better. Mm -hmm. Once we had that set up, a lot of super smart contributors came together to build the V1. And these are people that had you know, full-time jobs and were doing this as a side passion, as a hobby almost, uh, to build something they wanted to see as well. So we came together and over about six or seven weeks, put together PartyBid V1, uh, which was a better and improved protocol. And I think the most memorable part was the day after we launched, uh, we did our one of our first party bids was for a zombie punk uh, dubbed Party of the Dead, uh, which <laughs> got a lot of traction and I think uh, was fantastic seeing. So basically going from like, a tweet thread from Dave all the way to a working product that people are using to bid on one of the rarest crypto punks out there. Um, so yeah, that was basically the story behind PartyBid. Yeah, it's, I think it's really memorable just because people ended up using it and winning one of the most well-known NFTs. <laughs> right, and people are still using it today, which I think is awesome when hacks you know, have usage beyond just a, an initial idea. Is there any kind of monetization feature uh, built into PartyBit, or is it purely um, like a free tool for people to use? Yeah, so PartyBit takes 5%. Uh, so the PartyDAO takes 5% of the winning bid, um, only if you win, of course, to yeah. the DAO. And that's basically what helps bootstrap uh, future contributions, grants, things like that. So for example, now there's a full-time team of, I think, five or six folks who are actually continuing to build the V2 of the protocol And that's only been bootstrapped because we took a 5% fee from initial revenues. Oh, wow. And are you still involved with the effort? Yeah, definitely. I mean, when I get a chance and when I get time, I definitely help wherever I can. Now, I'm not full-time on it uh, since I'm at Paradigm, but mm -hmm. there's definitely folks who are very, very excited and fantastic developers, designers, thinkers who are building it now. Cool. And that that process basically that you applied for something like party bit and the one that you described earlier which is you like to focus on um, projects that are like two to three day sprints um, because that is what can best you know capture and like maintain 
a high degree of like excitement about a particular project, but how much would you say, um, the, like the learnings and, and methodologies from this, from the, the letter can transfer to building something like Polybit and beyond. So even like somebody who's looking to, to release a whole new project in crypto and like maintain it for years, how much can they learn from your experiences? Sure. For the hacks that I make, I usually try to do them two to four days, um, something that can be shipped in that interval. Because I think that's like the sweet spot where anything longer than that and I get bored uh, mm -hmm. and don't want to finish a project. Anything less than that, though, it's something I can sprint over a weekend, over a couple of days, get it out into the world and have people using it. I think for longer projects, I focus on something completely different, uh, which is maintainability, where For the hacks, it's more, let me get something out that works and not worry about, you know, what does this look like a year from now? Mm. Versus for bigger projects, I'm thinking more ahead uh, a couple of months, like how do how will I continue to maintain this? I should build this in like a very sustainable, robust way. I think for developers building longer term applications, there are learnings to take from the hacking model. One of the best ones I think is, you know, to work in short sprints, where if you can focus for three or four days, do that, then take a day or two break, then get back at it in sprint and you can basically go back and forth. And, and that's for me, at least the most optimal way of working. Um, but to also think about maintainability, I think is really, really important because um, there were a lot of, for example, there were a lot of decisions we, I made in party bid V0 that I built over the weekend that we had to rip out and rebuild for party bid V1. One of them was you couldn't rebid on initial contracts. So basically if you were outbid, you had to redeploy the party bid V0 contract. Um, And what that meant was that when we, when my friend and I won the call in Samir NFT, we were outbid three times, which meant we deployed a contract four times, paying all those additional gas fees, having the stress of doing it in like a 15-minute auction period. And so that was one of the decisions when thinking of maintainability with Party Bid V1 and you know having the time to build this in a proper way, I figured let's do it so that you can have multiple bids from one contract and not have to worry about redeploying. So things like that are stuff to keep in mind. How do you go about even like from, I think I want to learn a bit more about so how you go from like what you want to build to, you know, it writing it into a contract, like in the, in the case of party, but did you like spec out the things that it's supposed to do? Yeah. So usually the way that it'll start is I'll have an idea or I'll see an idea. It, mm -hmm. It's gotten a lot easier more recently since people tag me when they want something built. And so there's a, <laughs> good trove of ideas to pick from at any given point of time. That is useful. <laughs> yeah. Once I have the idea, I'll usually spend no more than five or 10 minutes to just spec out uh, just the basic functionality. Like for party bid, I would spec out something like this has to accept contributions from multiple people. It has to be able to place a bid. It has to be able to replace a bid if it's outbid. Once it's won, it has to be able to hold the NFT. And it has to be able to let people claim their money if you lose. So just five basic high-level items. Um, and that's basically just like guiding principles of what functionality needs to be there. And from there, I'll build uh, whatever needs to get built. So in the case of PartyBit, for example, that might be actual contract functions, right? Like withdraw ETH or contribute to Party uh, and build from there. That's usually the process. I tend not to make any MVPs uh, and iterate you know, by versions. I tend to just do something that's functional as the first go. Uh, and then if there's interest, if people want to keep building, then I can definitely go and rebuild and enhance on it like party bid. I just think I, I like to be very, you know, high fidelity, but low time, right? Get it out as soon as possible into the world so that people can play with it. 
isn't that the definition of a prototype? <laughs> Something that's barely usable and that can see if people get excited about it? I guess. I guess it is. I think with the prototype, though, there's like that implicit expectation that there will be something beyond a prototype. Um, for a lot of my hacks, that implicit expectation isn't there. It's sort of like this is a one and done idea um, that I'm putting out into the world that people are free to build on. It's open source. And I might even build on it like party bid. But there's no you know, expected notion that there is something more than this coming. I see. How is this? I mean, party bid is a great example. Have there been any other projects where other people have picked up the prototype that you left them or like the one-off prototype that you left them and started to expand on it? Yeah, there's been a couple. Uh, I think more recently, so a couple of years ago, I had built a IPFS document signing platform, uh, which was picked up by a couple of teams to build similar things for basically document verification. Um, I had built more recently a hack called PonFT, which was basically NFT lending. Mm -hmm. uh, with and you have fractionalized commitments and there's a couple of teams that have reached out that are building on top of that uh, or using similar code to build things and so uh, it's always fascinating to see hacks get put into practice by people um, and I think that's a role that I really enjoy in the community where I might not be someone that's you know building a protocol day in day out but if I can build some small hack in two or three days and nerd snipe people that want to keep building that idea I think I've done my job there then, um, which is what I find exciting. Do you think it is be going to become increasingly important for crypto venture funds to seed their own ideas in such a way and then invest in teams that might want to build on them? I think it's a great idea. Uh, I think the product studio mindset of building things in-house, seeding teams to build those things is fantastic. And the answer to that is easy because capital is abundant in crypto right now, right? Yes. Everybody wants to invest in crypto companies. There's not enough developers. There's not enough founders. There's lots of ideas that need to get built, but you know, nobody to build them right now. Mm -hmm. So what every venture firm wants to do is find that edge to be able to invest in those founders, to be able to get early into those deals. And I think the easiest way to do that is to incubate those deals, right? Get people yeah. who aren't ready to build a protocol yet, but have cool ideas, help support them at the fund, you know, uh, be able to support them through their journey. And then that's an easy way to be able to, you know, be first into the round when they're ready to raise as a supported partner mm -hmm. that they already know and trust. Uh, so I think it's a great idea. I think down the lane, we'll eventually see more and more of it happening. I think it already happens partly with Paradigm, uh, yeah. where we build and ship and publish open source. And there's definitely other firms that do it as well. Yeah, I think it's almost like, As a, as a venture firm, like you have the capital and you may have certain other benefits. Like, and it's, it's certainly easier if you also have great ideas and only hiring, trying to hire like a great founder for them instead of, instead of trying to hire both at the same time, like a great idea and a great founder, which is much right. rarer, right? And there's much more competition for it. Right. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, do you have any advice for builders in crypto in general that sort of we haven't mentioned yet? I don't think it's unique advice, but I'd say to just ship and ship fast. Uh, where I think there in crypto, you're afforded the benefit of your customers being literally a tweet away. Hmm. Your first users being a tweet away, your community members being, you know, one message away. And yeah. I think that it's best to capitalize on that opportunity and to build in a way where you can ship and iterate as soon as possible. Not only because 
it'll let you build a nice following and people who can help support you, uh, but also because it's a, it's a good way to build. Uh, it keeps you on your feet. Mm -hmm. You know, often when I mention that I, I don't know how to program, um, <laughs> uh, people don't believe me, but, um, so if I, if I wanted to, to learn how to code and be able to prototype ideas like you can, like in like the span of like two to five days or whatever, um, what would you say are the right steps for me, you know, to get up to speed as fast as possible? Well, I mean, firstly, Hasse, you'd make a great programmer. So I'm excited for when the day comes and you dive into it. I think what I would say is probably pick a language that's very easy to use uh, and pick up. Good examples being JavaScript or Python, and both of which also have great Web3 uh, crypto communities and packages built around them. And I say that because as a beginner, the hardest thing is going to be just staying put, you know, getting past the initial hurdle of learning syntax, getting past the initial, you know, actually just sitting down and spending an hour in front of a computer screen typing foreign letters is the hardest part of it. So you want to pick a language that'll make it as easy as possible for you. And languages that are very close to English don't require compiling, don't need you to wait or, you know, wait and get distracted. So JavaScript and Python are great candidates for that. Mm. Once you've done that for a couple of weeks, picked up syntax or comfortable building some applications with it, I think you already have good fundamental programming knowledge at that point to go and build other things. If you want to get deeper into crypto, once you've picked up those languages, play around with Web3, play around with Ethers, take a look at open source projects, and that's the easiest way. You know, Play with interacting with contracts on test nets. And then finally, when you're ready and you've done this for a couple of weeks, then I'd recommend you dive into Solidity and pick up things like Crypto Zombies or Open Zeppelin's Ethernauts, which are really great hands-on tutorials, which... Once you have knowledge of JavaScript or Python, a lot of the knowledge carries over very well to Solidity. You know, you, you already know how functions work, the types, parameters, how return types work. So it's really just moving the knowledge you already have and have built into a new paradigm, learning new things, and then being able to write smart contracts. Um, I, I definitely recommend uh, anyone to learn to code. Awesome. Briefly jumping back into your bi biography, there's one thing that we haven't discussed, and I think it's a great segue into uh, our next section. Um, so something that you did after making your first money building websites, but before finding crypto was um, trading skins on Steam. Can you describe what a skin is? Yeah, for sure. So skins are basically cosmetic items that upgrade items in game on in Steam game. So the one that I am most popularly played That was Counter-Strike uh, Global Offensive, where you would have weapons uh, and you could skin these weapons um, with these skin items. Mm -hmm. And after I had you know, started to make some money making websites and before I had found crypto, I needed to have something to spend my money on. <laughs> and like I mentioned, my parents didn't know I was making any money. So I couldn't just you know, buy a television that would get delivered to my house because then it would be like, okay, where'd you get the money from? Yeah. And so I had to spend this in digital economies. And so the way that I would do it is I'd buy skins stuff that I could play with, stuff that looked cool in-game. Mm -hmm. um, and eventually I realized that it's an economy in and of itself, right? Skins have floats, which are basically like how aesthetically pleasing they are, right? Their rarity from like Battle Scarred to Factory New. These skins can have stickers on top of them, which are like additional cosmetic um, things to add on. Mm -hmm. There can be different appeals for the same type of skin. So like case-hardened skins can have You know, more blue can have more yellow. Mm -hmm. um, and that changes the pricing of all of these items. And so 
as a kid, the market economics behind it was far more fascinating to me than actually playing the game. And so I found myself doing a lot of, you know, building rarity tools before they were popular for NFTs, uh, for skins, uh, and, you know, gambling with these skins, match betting, things like that, um, to play around with them. So um, by rarity, rarity tooling, you mean uh, what exactly? Sure. So in NFTs, we've seen a new popularized con like concept of rarity tools, where you have 10,000, let's say 10,000 profile picture projects. Some mm -hmm. will implicitly be more rare than others only because of the attributes that they have. Um, so for example, in the case of CryptoPunks, zombie punks are far more rare than normal human punks and alien punks are more rare than zombie punks. And that's only because of how they're distributed, right? There might only, I don't know what the exact number is, but there's like under 10 aliens, I think, yeah, uh, or somewhere aliens. around that number. Yeah. Right. Um, and in the same way, in the skin economy, you had the same thing going, where some skins were rarer than others, uh, which meant that you could essentially build rarity charts of, you know, which skin would trade at a premium to another and letting you trade up and go, you know, make a profit trading between people. And that's basically facilitated by OpenSea today, right? Yeah. Where you're flipping for attributes and trading on OpenSea. <laughs> how automated was that? Like how much software did you employ back then? Quite a bit. Uh, I think it was an advantage that I had where most trading, at least early on, was um, you could have like trade windows pop up uh, where you would pick other people's items and you'd send them offers. Uh, and one of the things that I did was make trade bots where people could, you know, purchase my skins at a slight premium uh, with the benefit that my bot would automatically accept their offers. Um, so they didn't have to wait for, you know, someone to get online, approve their offer, accept it. For people that just wanted to play with these skins, it was an easy way to you know, send an offer, instantly get the skin. And what oh, that you, meant were market, was you were market making and marketing exactly. up liquidity. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, that's so cool. Uh, and you know, make a slight profit on that. So I think that's the botting that I did. Um, Valve eventually did shut that down. Uh -huh. um, and you know, there was a whole slew of things that they did to restrict the market, which is you know, frankly why I don't do it today. Um, mm -hmm. But it was a ton of fun while it was still around. So when it finally, NFTs came around, NFTs collections, this rarity, you were like, finally, can you sell yeah. that old stuff again? <laughs> exactly. And there's a lot of paradigms. Like I've spoken to a lot of people that used to like snipe sneakers. Um, so, you know, back when sneaker drops, shoe drops were really popular, people would write bots to get in as soon as possible so that they could get these rare sneakers and then flip them on the secondary market. Wait, we're talking physical shoes here, yeah? Like we're talking physical Yeezys or what? Yeezys, exactly. Okay. So like there used to be drops for these Yeezys where they'd have, you know, 500 shoes being sold and people would race in to uh -huh. bought it and get those shoes because they meant easy profit, right? You could buy them for 350, sell them for you know, 2000 in the secondary market. And I see the same parallels with, you know, skins with shoe botting yeah. coming into NFTs now where people are building rarity tools like they did for skins to trade these things. People are building, you know, market making bots mm -hmm. on OpenSea so that they can have resting offers Uh, the same people that built, you know, shoe sniping bots are using that infrastructure to now build, you know, first come first serve NFT auction minting bots. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's fascinating to watch it sort of, you know, transfer over to NFTs now. Yeah, it's like, I play a fair bit of Dota 2. And like every couple of weeks, there's a new patch. And then mm -hmm. you can tell from the patch notes already, like which hero is going to be in meta because they get buffed and right. others get nerfed. And that has a big effect on how much they appear in game because people want to play the heroes that recently got buffed and so on. Right. And you can immediately see how basically 
their items, their skins get marked up in the marketplace, like due mm. to the buff. So you have so many layers there, right? People like, like basically analyze the text of the patch notes immediately, probably using some kind of machine learning software and then bid right. up, buy up all the, <laughs> the NFTs that that hero, uh, no, I said, now I said NFTs as well, <laughs> no, <laughs> uh, buy up all the skins that this hero is going to wear in game, which is kind of hilarious. Right. Um, yeah, so um, so we talked about skins um, and we talked about um, shoe launches, <laughs> shoe drops. Um, <laughs> um, so this is something that we also recently spent a lot of time thinking about, right? So basically yes. the, the difference between um, primary markets for NFTs and secondary markets. Can you briefly describe what the difference between those two is? Sure. So the primary markets are essentially where the first distribution of an NFT collection happens. Most recently, what we've seen is that this happens directly at the contract layer, where developers will ship new contracts that mint NFTs, and they'll put up front ends, and people will mint these NFTs from the primary market, which is the web, their websites themselves. Uh, an example is, for example, the Larva Labs website, which has CryptoPunks. Back when CryptoPunks were still mintable, you would go to the Larva Labs website, you would connect your wallet and you'd be able to mint a CryptoPunk for whatever the predefined price was. The secondary markets is where you can take your NFTs and then trade them. So these include things like OpenSea, Rarible, Zora, uh, and a whole slew of other marketplaces, exchanges, and protocols that let you essentially either sell your NFT, either buy NFTs on the secondary market or trade your NFTs for other people's NFTs. And we focus with our paper, uh, Designing Effective NFT Launches, that some of you may have seen, uh, we focused on, you know, primary markets, how NFTs first first get sold in, in like the primary marketplace. Why is this topic close to your heart? That's a good question. So like I had mentioned previously with botting and skin rarity, when a collection is first sold on the primary market, there's a lot of ways for people that are, you know, closely observing the collection to have an implicit advantage. Right. And I'll give you a couple examples of that. Um, the first in our article, which I recommend everyone read, um, we highlighted a couple of ways that there's user harm, that the average user has a implicit detriment compared to everyone else who's competing. One of the ones is exploitable fairness, where if a contract is made public and developers like myself can rush in and immediately rank the rarity of items, and mint the rarest items, it's less fair for everyone else who can't do the same thing. And an example of that is loot, where a couple of weeks ago, the NFT world was taken by storm with these loot bags that contained eight adventure items. Mm -hmm. um, and everyone loved this idea. And we saw a lot of derivative projects pop up that did the same thing in different ways, right? Eight numbers or eight items, eight food uh, pieces, you know, eight places to visit, things like that. What was special about these contracts was that all of their metadata was on-chain, which meant that motivated individuals, you know, like myself, could quickly scrape all of the tokens, rank which ones the NFTs were the rarest, and then buy only the rarest ones, uh, which made it difficult for anyone else uh, to be able to have a fair chance. There's other types of problems as well. Uh, one of the most frequent problems with NFT drops in the primary market is first-come, first-serve auctions and sales, which is basically... Let's say I want to sell 10,000 of my NFTs and I want to sell them for $100 each. I'll say whoever gets into this first is can mint freely. 
Now, this is disadvantageous, not just because, you know, people have to sleep and there's different time zones, but because you're moving the auction into a gas war, right? Where people are now bidding these for these NFTs, paying high gas prices. And overall, that's just bad user experience. Um, and so in the article, we highlighted a couple of these, exploitable fairness, gas auctions, high skill, gas inefficiency, exclusive minting and trusted operators. It's sort of like the six examples of user harm that we've noticed um, that just make primary markets um, less fair for the average user. Yeah, one, st one stat that you extracted actually, um, and that made me like go, wow, is uh, for the, 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 the time pieces uh, from New York Times. Uh, in their job that uh, I think it sold out in like three to four minutes, but even more noteworthy was um, wh what also happens every time you have these auctions play out in the mempool, which is that um, a lot of people try to get the transaction in, but then the NFT that are trying to buy is already sold out, right? And in this case, it led to over 10,000, I think, failed transactions, right? Um, costing users collectively almost almost a million dollars, right? Um, yeah, yeah, it was, it was 10,962 participants. So yeah. that's a lot of people, almost 11,000 people, and they lost 252 ETH uh, over 100 blocks, which is crazy. Almost a million dollars lost, you know, minting these NFTs. That's kind of, that's kind of crazy, yeah. Okay, so based on that, we, uh, what we did was sort of, we looked at how user harm had been caused you know, objectively by, by these launches, how people have lost money on them and, and how, how fairness had, had been basically destroyed. And we used that sort of to derive some, almost like taking the inverse of that, right? Looking at, okay, right. so here's, here's how people got, got wrecked. So, okay, uh, how, how can we do it better? So we, let's have like these and these and these positive properties and have them almost like objective functions, right? For your launch. Right. And uh, what did we do next? What we did was we unbundled NFT launches, right? Where we mapped out exactly what a launch consists of at its heart. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think to quote you, actually, uh, the four things that we came up with were the bidding phase, which is when the sale goes live, you know, this is when users submit their bids to buy an NFT. The clearing phase, which is once you have all of these bids, you decide who actually gets to win the NFT, you know, especially when the demand significantly outpaces the supply of a collection. You have the distribution phase where once it's cleared, you've picked, you know, hypothetically your 10,000 winners. How do you actually get the NFT into their hands? And then finally, you have the metadata reveal phase where it's once you've done all your distribution, how do you actually show users what their NFT is, what the attributes are? Um, and this is important because the metadata reveal has to be at the end because as we saw in the loot example, if metadata ha reveal happens anytime earlier, uh, it's easy to exploit its fairness. Yeah, I think this was definitely like the most fun thing that I've worked on in a long time because I think it is this way of taking something that looks like one mesh of things and has like a bunch of properties and then breaking it down into into like its smallest component of parts that's the make up a whole, right? And right. this was such an educational experience for me and I think in all of the best things that you end up that you write, it's always like the thing that you end up doing changes multiple times completely over the course of like a couple of weeks, right? So right. I think it was actually pretty late in the process that we had arrived, that you arrived at like these four stages. I think part of that is because we had a very adversarial mindset when we were in this, right? It's like we were thinking of 
being the NFT developers where we had a couple of ideas early on where we realized, okay, you know what? This wouldn't work because this is how we would exploit it. Um, <laughs> we just went back and forth trying to exploit the same mechanisms that we built. And I think that was super fun. Yeah, yeah. I, I had an absolute blast writing this. Um, and what I also like a lot is how well it transfers basically is, is I mean, the metadata, re as, the metadata reveal aspect is sort of unique to NFTs, but also to something like lotteries and so on, right? To, to if, if somebody want, were to run like uh, some kind of gambling ga game on chain or actually any kind of game that involves randomness. But all of the rest is, is, is like also super relevant to any kind of token that uh, people want to launch on chain, right? which is actually super common. Right. I think the practices carry on beyond just NFTs, right? They carry on yeah. to initial token distributions, ICOs, you know, pool offerings, things like that. Yeah. So can you describe sort of what was the, we, we, we summarized basically three main takeaways. I don't want to get into like the whole paper here, but there are three things that we isolated that are the most important um, to us and that we want everyone to take away. Um, so can you first talk about uh, unexploitable fairness and how to ensure it? So the first takeaway we had was that your NFT drop has to have fair metadata. And the way to ensure that is to have randomization, right? Mm -hmm. Don't let anyone, not even you as a developer, not the operator, not any individual user, none of, no one should be able to figure out what an NFT is before it's done minting. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, you might think, okay, why is this even a problem? Like who cares? Yeah. But the reality is that when these NFTs trade for, you know, hundreds of, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars in the secondary market, the difference in between the average NFT and your rare NFT, it might be like an order of magnitude difference. So people are actually incentivized to have the rarest NFTs, right? You want to be unique. What we figured out was you will have to have randomness at every aspect. So mm -hmm. once you've minted, the first thing we realized was that the NFT metadata reveal has to happen after minting. Because if you reveal the metadata before minting, then people can choose what to mint. And you don't want to let that happen. So effectively, your NFT metadata reveal has to happen at the end, and it has to have some random source of entropy. Um, in the example that we provided, we used Chainlink VRF to get a random number from Chainlink. Uh, in other ways, you could use commit reveal schemes. You could have multiple people commit numbers that are used as entropy. Um, various ways. And to show why, if you don't do this, it gets exploitable, right? What are some approaches that people have used um, when the metadata was revealed. You, you touched on one earlier where in loot, loot made it just extremely easy for like the exploiter, right? Because you could just tell the contract, I want to mint the idea that has this and this ID. And I think this is like most, most people who are not super technical don't know this, but the token on Ethereum, any token, is just an entry like in a database contract, right? It's just right. this address controls uh, this ID basically. Yeah, and like, and this and this much of it. Um, and th th the loot contract, you could just tell, I want to mint this ID. And if it wasn't minted yet, then it would mint it for you. And if it wasn't minted, the transaction would fail basically. Um, so, but there were there are other examples, right? So let, let's, let's talk about the Mebit auction, for example. And the Mebit auction is like, it actually took a lot of precautions against people being able to um, extract the metadata in advance, but it still happened. Yes. And I think it just speaks to how difficult it is to do this perfectly. 
Um, so Meebits were a collection from Larva Labs, the creators of CryptoPunks, highly anticipated 20,000 of these block-styled um, NFTs. And it's like the yeah. most blue chip it gets, right, in crypto. Like Larva Labs are the NFT OGs they know all about exactly. how to run these auctions. Exactly. This is If there's any NFT you want to exploit, this is the one you want your eyes on, right? And yeah. so it did have a lot of eyes from people who wanted to do this. One of the functionalities of the Meebits website was that after you minted your NFT, they selectively revealed the metadata for your NFT. So for example, if I minted NFT123, I could see the metadata for NFT123, but I couldn't see the, the metadata for any other unminted Meebits. Mm-hmm. Um, so one would think that hypothetically this is fair, right? If I can't see the metadata for any Meebit, then I can't mint one that's explicitly rare, it's randomized. What someone figured out, though, was by inspecting the code of the website, um, they figured out that there was a URL on IPFS where all of the metadata was stored, whether that was unminted or minted. And this individual went and they went, okay, let me take from token ID 1 to token ID 20,000, loop through it, and pull the metadata for everything. So even if the website didn't showcase unminted Mebits, they found a way where the data was still leaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what this allowed them to do was to pick the rarest Mebits and know exactly what ID they wanted to mint. Even then, though, it wasn't that easy for them to go ahead and just mint that desired ID. In the case of Loot, like the example, you could provide the ID you wanted to mint. Right? If I wanted to mint 123, I could just tell the contract, hey, give me 123, and if it's available, it was mine. Yeah. In the case of Mebits, that wasn't there. They used on-chain pseudorandomness um, to basically randomize the ID that you got. This exploiter, though, was smart, uh, where they wrote their own contract, which was basically like a re-roll contract. And we include a sample of that in the article if anybody wants to dig in. But what it let them do was they would pay for a Mebit, mm-hmm. and when on the callback, they would receive their NFT, and they would run a check. They would say, hey, does this NFT equal one of the desired rare NFTs, one of the rare Mebits that I want? And if it did, they would keep the Mebit, But if it didn't, they would just revert the transaction. They would cause it to fail. Mm -hmm. And what that meant was that instead of them having to pay the mint cost, which I think was something like 2.5 ETH when Mebits came out, Mm -hmm. instead they only paid for failed transactions, which was somewhere around like 0.01 ETH. Um, So effectively, they could loop through all the available Mebits. And over, you know, they had to spend some ETH on a couple hundred transactions that failed. But eventually, they were able to get ultra rare Mebits that sold for you know many hundreds of ETH in the secondary market. And all that it cost them was a couple of failed transactions. Um, in today's day and age, this is even easier, right? With Flashbots, mm-hmm. you don't even have transactions. You don't even have to pay for transactions that revert. So we could run even the same exploit and loop through all the transactions and have zero cost unless you minted a super rare one. Um, so that sort of just speaks to why we think unexploitable fairness is very, very important for a metadata, uh, for a collection, excuse me. The second one that we discussed is sort of preventing race conditions, right? And the race condition is any time that you have like a, a more demand than supply and then people are racing in order to, you know, get filled basically on their bid. And um, in the case of a gas auction, that just means, you know, the people who can get their transaction mined first, they will get the NFT. Or those who have access to better tools like bots or access to power tools like flashbots before it became like more democratic, um, basically always have a, a huge edge, right? And in worst case, this is just a miner who just controls like the entire block, right? And can decide which trans- transactions to include. Um, 
and not even to mention like all of the negative externalities that are created for users of Ethereum. So I think in our paper, we gave like, uh, like 10 or what examples of, uh, right. when, uh, NFT launches sort of quote unquote outsourced their auction to the miners. And I think this, like this whole mental model of like outsourcing an auction, like you're not making the auction go away. You're just letting someone else do it and you're giving it to the miner. And right. I think we showed like how, how this basically what happened to Ethereum in these periods and the network just got completely clocked up and, um, yeah, I mean, gas prices went to sometimes over like a thousand quay in some cases, even I think a couple of thousand quay, um, and basically becomes unusable for anyone else because somebody is utilizing this like public infrastructure for something for, for, for like their own private endeavor, basically. And I mean, they are paying for it. So it's like not unfair in any sense, but it's the, there are better ways to do it. Right. So what, what was sort of our core insight to preventing these race conditions? Yeah. So I think you mentioned it perfectly. And I think the stat we mentioned was in the month of September, there were seven or eight periods of time when gas price spiked past 1250 Gwei. Uh, and every single one of them was because of an NFT auction. Um, so it says something where, you know, the entire Ethereum network is held up for people minting NFTs. Um, so yeah, so the way that we came about thinking about it was the only way to resolve this is to not have a first come first serve auction. It, it shouldn't be a rush to get into the auction. There should be no race condition where the people who are fastest, the people who pay the most gas are, you know, advantaged over everyone else. Uh, and, and we dubbed this sort of sequential bidding and clearing where mm -hmm. you can have people enter a pool of participants and then you can clear that pool of participants. Uh, for example, a raffle or a batched auction. Um, the way that we proposed was a raffle where you set aside a period of time, let's say 24 or 48 hours, and you let as many people, as many addresses that want to participate, commit some amount of ETH and then enter this pool of participants. After that period of 24, 48 hours has ended, which to mention is also beneficial because keeping a long enough window allows people that are you know, in other time zones are working, are sleeping to be able to participate as well. Mm -hmm. Once that window has completed, then you have a clearing phase where from your pool of participants, you pick winners. Now, I'll give you an example. If you have an NFT auction where you want to give away, let's say 10,000 NFTs, and there might be two scenarios. You hold a raffle and of 10,000, only 6,000 participants enter. In this case, it's really easy. You just simply allow those 6,000 to mint their 6,000 NFTs. In the alternate case where demand is greater than supply, which is what we most usually see, you can have a raffle. So let's say there's those 10,000 NFTs and you have 60,000 participants that come in. Mm -hmm. Now, of these 60,000 participants, you have to pick about one in six. And so you would use a raffle, which takes some random number, because of course you want to be as fair as possible. Uh, in our case, we use Chainlink VRF to get a random number on chain. And you would use that number to randomize your 60,000 participants and pick the 10,000 winners. So in this way, it's just as fair for everyone, regardless of you know, how much gas you're paying to enter, regardless of how many tickets you have, each ticket is only as, sorry, excuse me, each ticket has the same chance of winning as every other ticket. So you mentioned the raffle is like one way of um, selecting the winners. Um, Another one that is um, always brought up sort of in the context of blockchains, but had never really caught on in big way in popularity is the batched auction. 
In a batched, like you can have a bunch of different ways to do a batched auction, but the main idea is just to collect everyone's bids first. And a bid is just, is basically an expression of, I want to pay, I want to buy this amount of like tokens, whatever could, can be anything at this price, right? So it's basically an expression of the user, user's preference. And then when, when all of the bits are collected, then you run some algorithms that selects uh, which, which are the winning bits. And you have like really a huge design space there. But um, one very nice property is, is that you can clear everyone, for example, at the same market price, right? So you can, um, you basically, no, no, no matter how much people were willing to pay, um, you clear them all at the same price. So that's very nice. That's, that's also another property that I think the first come first surf launches currently break, right? Where um, people who are like are very good at bidding very good at guessing like the, the actual clearing price, they, they tend to get pay far less than somebody who has to overpay, for example, because they are less skilled. Right. Right. Um, so batch auctions are catching, catching up in popularity now. I think also with some projects like Housewap, for example, that run a similar approach to Dex trading, but in general, um, it's sort of an approach that has not received a, a lot of love in crypto, even though you would think that it just makes a ton of sense because the, the blockchain itself sort of has this like very slow heartbeat, right? Where there's a new block on average every 12 to 13 seconds. And it really doesn't make much sense to like have like priority in between different, different bits in between these blocks. But, uh, and then like whenever you, you try to enforce it anyway, then it just be, turns into like an auction of who can pay minus the most. So basically any system that, that, that has like uses sort of a, a heartbeat that is faster than an Ethereum block automatically leaks value to miners. And I think that's something that like, if you design any kind of application, uh, it's something that you definitely want to avoid, not just because it leaks value, but also because it just poses a very bad experience for your users. Um, so yeah, those are, I think, high level, the two approaches that we explained. So the key is here, turning it from an auction that, and you can never avoid having an auction. You're always going to have an auction when people, when there's like more, demand and supply. And I think that's one key insight. And I think the second is that if you want to avoid all of these negative externalities and negative, negative consequences for users, then you have to turn this into a, from, from what we call the continuous auction into a sequential one. And in the continuous case, you still, you, you still have users bidding and you still have someone clearing. So users submit the bids to miners. And then the miners just look at the supply and they clear it every block. Um, uh, but in our case, so we, we say, so, hey, first people, you have this whole time to submit your bits, and then we will clear it according to some algorithm, whether that's importing randomness on chain, but you can even clear it off chain. If you gave a great, like an example of a launch that did this really well, which is the, um, the Spank chain launch in, I think it was as, as early as like 2017, right? Um, right. And used like a very good, uh, a very good mechanism to do this off-chain. Um, and yeah, and that's just, it has like all of these advantages, basically, that I think would be very nice if, um, if people were using them more. And that brings us to the last property, um, which is cost efficiency. So there's actually one launch, I think, that we want to point out, uh, which is JPEX Automat. Um, and they use the batch auction. They use sort of a very crude way. It's sort of like, I would say, almost like the minimum viable <laughs> batch auction where they didn't allow users to, to say like uh, how much they want to pay per NFT, which is 
you kind of would expect this to be possible. They only allowed users to say how much ETH they want to commit, but not the price at which they want to buy like each NFT or how much they want to get. Right. Um, and this had one downside. So can you walk us through that? Sure. So our third conclusion that we took away was that you have to consider cost efficiency from minute one. And we realized this looking at the JPEGs auto market batched auction on MISO, where while the idea was very novel and the mechanism was definitely unique and it had its benefits and its disadvantages, both of that we discussed in the article, one thing we realized was that it required a lot of transactions in the sense that there were a lot of on-chain interactions that a user had to do from the point of saying, hey, I want to buy an NFT to, hey, I have this NFT and the metadata is revealed. And this is problematic because every transaction on Ethereum costs gas, which means that the more transactions you make, the more you're paying, the more expensive it is for the end user. In the case of MISO, we found that at the bare minimum, I think it was four or five transactions that you had to make in order to be able to just mint an NFT. Uh, this is contrasted to the first come first serve auctions where you only have to get one transaction in the mint yeah. transaction. Uh, and in the worst case, it was something like seven or eight transactions that you had to make to just be able to get your NFT. So overall, while in the individual stages, you might have had you know, cheaper gas prices because you were able to time the market. At the end of the day, there was a huge burden to the user of having to pay for these transactions. Um, and so what we considered was when anyone designs a new mechanism, when you are thinking of how to make your NFT launch fair, you have to keep in mind not just optimizing for the fairness, but also optimizing for the cost that users will have to pay for that fairness. Or ideally, most of the expensive operations you keep either open to everyone or something that you as an operator can do, and you make it so that you minimize the number of actions that the user has to take to get their NFT. And sort of like socializing the gas costs. So anyone who's looking to launch a like new NFT collection or really any token, um, on Ethereum, I think um, I would encourage to you know check out this post and because at every step, every of these four steps really break down what the different trade-offs are that you can make and what sort of their consequences are on on the launch at large. And the design space is really big. I mean, I'm sure there are a ton of options that we missed that you can do. Definitely. Um, and I'm just really excited to you know track the space over like the next twelve months and see how it develops, basically. Right. So if, if you want to launch an NFT, what do you think about the choice between using like your own, rolling your own contract um, and doing it like sort of directly on chain versus using one of the available, let's say like launch marketplaces. And by launch marketplace, I mean the one that people are maybe most familiar with would be something like MISO, right? So basically launch a token infrastructure as a service. Right. So I think we're going to see more and more launch marketplaces pop up as NFT designers, as NFT curators come into the space, simply because not everyone is a developer. And as we've noticed, designing a fair NFT auction, designing mm -hmm. a fair mechanism is very, very tough. And it's something that I don't think yeah. anyone has cracked perfectly yet. These shared marketplaces, the benefit that they offer is they give sort of one pre-built package that they've vetted that's been used before that these creators can come apply their metadata, apply their images, apply their artwork, their video, and be able to launch with those same best practices. Yeah. And it has its benefits. You mentioned MISO is one. Another one is the OpenSea storefront, um, where the benefits that they offer, for example, in the OpenSea cases, someone who has no technical background can take their artwork, 
can mint NFTs and can do them without even spending gas because they have lazy minting on OpenSea, right? So you can have... Yeah, so lazy minting is this idea where you upload your NFTs and Mm -hmm. they're stored on OpenSea centralized until the point of purchase. So I can basically mint, hypothetically mint my NFTs for free. And then when somebody comes along, a buyer, and says, hey, I like this NFT, I want to buy it, OpenSea will mint that NFT to that buyer at the point of purchase, basically avoiding the creator having to pay any gas fees. Oh, so it's is it like the same as batch minting in a sense? Almost. Or is it oh, it's except, like you, you're batching the mint and the distribute together? Right, except in the case of the batch mint, you do that upfront, right? Where when you deploy the NFT, you'll batch mint yourself, let's say, 10 NFTs. Mm-hmm. Here, the NFTs aren't even minted yeah. until the point of purchase. Yeah. Um, so it's offers quite a bit of gas savings for at least the average creator that doesn't want to spend thousands of dollars deploying a contract on Ethereum at any given point in time. And these marketplaces have their benefits, right? They're easy to use, they're convenient. And one of the things that we've noticed is that they also have their detriments. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the key ones being the lock-in. Uh, an example is with OpenSea. There's been a lot of collections recently from artists that have come, have launched a collection on OpenSea and have had success that they didn't anticipate. Right, People love their NFTs, people are minting a lot of these, and now they want to build a community around it, they want to expand it. Mm-hmm. But a detriment that comes out of using the OpenSea shared storefront um, and their NFT minting contracts is the fact that you're locked into those contracts. You can't take your community anywhere else. And because you don't have your own contracts, there's only so much extensibility that's offered to you. And so recently we've seen sort of reminting, where people will migrate users from OpenSea contracts to their own contracts by letting them mint one-to-one replicas. So if you have you know, ID1 of an OpenSea NFT, you can mint ID1 on a custom contract. So I think there's a, there's a balance to be had there where you can take the shared marketplaces for the convenience, you can take the you know, custom-made contracts for the extensibility, um, or you could you know, go with something in between. Um, I think Manifold is one corporation building something like that. Um, but it's, it's like a, a balancing act of picking what's the best for your community and for your project. Yeah. I think, what, what do you think is like the long-term equilibrium here? Is it more like we are going to have like a, an open source toolbox for developers to, you know, choose very specialized, but standalone launch, launch contracts from, or is it more like that, you know, these launch as a service marketplaces will ultimately win out and also like offer like really good trade-offs for users? Sure. I think the good parallel is back as a kid, I used to make websites, right? When I was 10 or 11. Yeah. And business got really bad when companies like Squarespace came out uh-huh. that let you build all of these, you know, take templates, take existing examples that had worked and drag and drop and build these fantastic websites. I think we'll start to see the same thing happen for NFTs, right? Where right now there's a lot of custom contracts. There's, you know, different people do different things, different function names, mm-hmm. a lot of, you know, complication in the development process, I think what we'll start to see is sort of like a Squarespace moment for NFTs, where there will be, you know, projects that pop up that will offer open source, well-vetted, audited implementations of these distributions. And they'll let people drag and drop what they want, right? Like I could drag, I want a batched auction. I want 10,000 people, drag and drop my artwork in, hit create, and it just spins up a Web3 front end. I pay and it deploys the contracts and it does everything for me. And I think that's really where we're heading. Man, where that's really cool super vision. simple. Yeah, I love that vision. It's really cool. I think the whole idea of like drag and drop contracts 
not even just for NFTs, but in general, I think like some projects are already like um, experimenting with something like this, right? If I look at DeFi Saver or InstaDeb, I think they both have right. functionality like that. I think that's that's really promising in the long run. Agreed. But NFT primary markets are only one part of the picture. I think it's actually a very small, it's an important, but it's a very small part of overall NFT volume. Most NFTs are traded in secondary markets. Um, so can you describe sort of what is the current state of like the secondary markets and NFTs? How is like the, the fragmentation looking? Who are like the winners and losers? And how do you expect this market to develop over the next year? Sure. So I think in terms of the NFT secondary market, there's sort of two emerging categories that have come up. One is catered to these projects that have many NFT mints, you know, tens of thousands of mints, um, and have various attributes and sort of entire collections. And we've seen the clear winners there be, you know, for off-chain, you know, things like OpenSea, Rarible, on-chain pro projects like Zora, right? And these are the exchanges and marketplaces where you can list these NFTs, filter by attributes, purchase these NFTs, trade them, have offers and whatnot. Can you expand on why the first two are off-chain and the latter is on-chain? Because as to, to me as a user, I constantly have to like sign transactions and make transactions when I interact with them anyway. Sure, sure. So it's the varying degrees of centralization. So if you've used OpenSea before, what you'll notice is that once you've approved a collection for sale, you don't have to make an on-chain transaction to actually list your NFT. It's just a signature, right? It's like if I approve, if I, have, if I own 15 loot, and I approve loot once, I can sell ID 1, ID 15, ID 100 without ever having to make an on-chain transaction. And the way that that works is that OpenSea essentially maintains a centralized order book, right? Where they take your signed transaction and they hold it on their database and they list that signed transaction on their front end. Then when a buyer comes along, the buyer makes the on-chain transaction where they bundle together their purchase transaction and your sell transaction that they pull from OpenSea together, and because you've already signed it, it's verified that this is yours, and you can immediately sell that NFT. Um, and so Rarible, OpenSea, the way that they do it is sort of these centralized order books um, behind the scenes. Zora, in contrast, does everything on-chain. Uh, they like to ensure the composability with protocols and whatnot. And so the way that they do it is when you list your NFT for sale, you make an on-chain transaction that essentially moves the NFT to a contract. Um, so it's no longer owned by you, it's owned by like a marketplace. Uh, each has its benefits and advantages, right? Simply, you could expect that, you know, the centralized ones are centralized, so it's hard to build adapters, hard to build projects along with it. And a good example is there's no party bidding on OpenSea NFTs, right? Because it's it's almost impossible to do that on-chain. Um, versus, in contrast, Zora, for example, is on-chain, so there are party bids for Zora NFTs. Uh -huh. um, and on the same way, it has its detriments too, right? OpenSea is great because you don't have to pay gas costs to quickly sell a lot of NFTs, right? And um, for some collectors, that's a huge deal because some of these NFTs, the gas cost to sell them at times can be more expensive than the actual NFT itself. Um, versus for Zora, every transaction has to be made on chain, which means it's more expensive if you're listing a lot of NFTs. So there's its disadvantages and advantages. And so that's one series of NFT marketplaces. I think it's really important. I think that this is probably a trend in crypto that's going to accelerate in a big way where people are only going to sign transactions and then something happens to these transactions off chain. Um, 
So can you like because I think this is going to like get more and more important in crypto. Can you can you explain like what really happens here, sort of behind the scenes with uh, with OpenSea and what guarantees the user gets? Sure. And what they have to trust. Yeah. So first to prove the to play the devil's advocate almost, I'd argue that that's the opposite of what's going to happen. All right. I think we'll see mm-hmm. more on-chain interaction happen. Um, and I think the only reason we're limited to making it off-chain right now is because of how expensive everything is. Interesting. Right? At least I'd like to hope that you know when layer two is at its peak, when we yeah. have all of these ways where gas is super cheap, uh-huh. then it won't matter to people if they're making transactions on-chain. Right? It just mm-hmm. won't be a cost that they'll consider. Um, and it'll offer a lot more composability. Uh, but to get to your point, um, how does OpenSea do it? Is In Ethereum, when you send a transaction, there's two parts to that. The first is you sign the transaction. So you take your private key, right, that is you, and you basically imagine like a figurative, like autographing the transaction that says, hey, this is me, This I am approving this transaction. And then the second part is sending the transaction, where you submit that signed bundle, you submit those that signed code to the blockchain, and the blockchain can verify that you were the one that submitted that transaction. And this is basically what offers the cryptographic security that a blockchain does, right? Where you can't, I can't submit a transaction from Hasu's wallet because I don't have his private key. I can't sign and verify that I am Hasu. I am the one submitting this transaction. That's the same guarantee that storefronts like OpenSea that exchanges and marketplaces use to offer off-chain transactions, where I can sign ownership over some ID, over some item, but not have to submit it. Um, And this is weird because for most people, you've only used MetaMask, right? Where you sign and send at the same time. It's like just a transaction. Um, But with OpenSea, what you'll notice is that when the pop-up comes up to sell an NFT, after you've approved a collection, or actually, you know what, let me step back a bit. Why do you approve a collection? So when you approve a token on Ethereum, you're basically giving a right to someone else to spend your balance. Mm -hmm. So in the case of OpenSea, if I approve OpenSea to spend my loot, I'm saying, hey, for a brief period of time or until I cancel this, I'm delegating OpenSea as being allowed to take loot from my balance and move it somewhere else. Once you've given them this... This is hmm? really interesting, right? Because most people, when they think about Ethereum, they think payments are pushed but it's actually the opposite, right? Every payment is, can only be pulled from like another user or smart contract. Right, exactly. It's like you mentioned earlier with database entries, right? It's like I'm giving someone admin approval over my part of the database mm-hmm. to change around the numbers as they see fit. <laughs> yeah. And that's basically what OpenSea does in this case. Now, the caveat here is that to do that, they still need to have a signed transaction from me, right? And so... What, the, what actually selling an NFT looks like on OpenSea is that I will sign that, yes, I'd like to sell NFT number one. And that transaction can be sent immediately to list mm-hmm. it. That transaction can be sent you know, 24 hours from now when there's a bid, or that transaction can never be sent. And it can just get invalidated, right? Uh, but what it lets us do is it lets OpenSea store that record that they can then pull and apply at any point in time. And so essentially what OpenSea does is they act as you know the marketplace that where people would sign sell transactions, meet people who want to make on-chain buy transactions, they match them together, and then finally you submit the transaction on-chain and it executes like it should, so that you know the, the seller gets the ether, the tokens that they want, and the buyer gets the NFT that they want. Um, all while avoiding on-chain transactions as much as possible. And there's no risk of getting executed at a bad price because you sign the transaction at a particular price, right? You say 
I only buy this NFT at this price. I only sell it at this price at a minimum. Exactly. So your parameters are encoded in your signature. And that's the best part of cryptography, right? If, if OpenSea tries to manipulate it, they say, you know, instead of Anish selling his loot for 100 bucks, now he's going to sell it for one cent, right? Even if they change that data, that automatically voids my signature, which means it no longer applies and that sale isn't valid. Um, so which is super unique. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> so what features, taking a step back here, what features do you think uh, are missing from the current state of um, the NFT secondary market? That's a good question. I think my answers might be different from someone that's you know trading NFTs day in, day out, or different from a collector. I think every participant in the ecosystem will say something else. I think for me personally, the two biggest ones First is the curation aspect, where I, as someone who don't have enough time to look through you know, all these NFTs, follow every launch, I want to know at a glance which NFTs are the ones that people love, right? Which are the cool ones? What, is, what, what should I be purchasing? Hmm. And so I think filtering, curation, being able to you know, go from a collection of 100,000 items, like I think Artblock is a good example, right? Where it's, there's over like, Two, three, four hundred thousand different types of art blocks across playgrounds, across curated, and all of them are super fascinating. But all of them have different prices. If I search up art blocks, it'll pull up all different types of collections, and it's just really difficult to decipher in on like how do I how do I go to OpenSea and find a Fidenza, right? It's really difficult for me to do that, um, at least from an average user. So I think filtering and curation will become really important with these NFT marketplaces. And I think the second part. Uh, and that might be like the implicit trader within me wants an easier venue for liquidity, right? Yeah. We've started to see it already with things like NFTX and, you know, pooling together these things um, to have like one price that you can apply to a collection. But I think where we're headed is going to be almost an order book for NFTs, right? Where people can submit their bids and people can submit their offers and they'll be like matching like there is, it'll be like the BitMEX for NFTs. Uh, and I think that's where we'll finally get some super fascinating price discovery where people are trading these like not just as fungible assets, but now as like entire collections and the price of the collection. Ah, okay. And do you envision that to be like a global order book that spans a bunch of different venues or how, would, how does this work? I think it would have to be a global order book unless all the liquidity is like trapped in one place, right? Like I think Larva Labs could probably make do with just one order book for CryptoPunks because most of the CryptoPunk you know, volume is done on the Larva Labs platform by their contract. Uh, in contrast to something like you know, uh, Artblocks, where you know, some is primary market, some is secondary market. There's various places where you can, you, know, you can list it on Zora, you could list it on OpenSea, on Rarible, where there might be a global one. And I think I would prefer a global one, because if this is something that's on-chain, if it's something that's really accessible, if there's an API, there's a lot of composability that can be done. Right? It's basically an oracle, uh, an mm -hmm. accurate price oracle of a collection. So, uh, yeah, I hope it's global. It'll be fascinating. What is your theory for why custodial trading for NFTs has not taken off like at all? Like Because we, when we look at regular crypto tokens, they trade the biggest volume on centralized exchanges. But centralized exchanges have been really slow to list NFTs. Why? I think there's two parts to it. I think the easy answer is we haven't seen it thus far because nobody's done it thus far, right? I think the first I heard of an exchange doing NFTs was like FTX, and that was like maybe three weeks ago, right? And then Coinbase last week, 
Um, so it's still really early uh, where these exchanges are picking up and coming into the NFT space. I think the second part of non-custodial is I think it's the ethos of NFTs as a whole, right? Mm -hmm. Where the reason why NFTs are special to many people is the ownership aspect. You know, it's like on Twitter, you'll go and there'll be people saying, you know, I just copy pasted your NFT, right? This is my JPEG now. And they'll reply with that. And the reasoning it's special is because I own this NFT, right? My address is the owner. And I think that sort of even psychological aspect of owning something goes away when it's in like a custodial way, right? Where it's sitting in an exchange account where you're like, okay, is this really mine? But when it's in your address, when you can see it, that feels real. I mean, it's so, it would be so funny if like the petty NFT critics are the ones who drive people to more like self-custody. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Okay, so now um, I want to change gears uh, quite a bit. <laughs> I want to talk about ethics in crypto. So for anyone with your skills who looks at so many contracts, so many open source contracts, who has also so much knowledge about like how contracts are vulnerable, uh, such deep experience in like NFT primary markets, um, they have to grapple, you know, with the question if code is law. And if you saw a vulnerability in a contract, what do you do with it? What are your thoughts on this topic? Sure. I think it's a heated topic. I think personally, I do believe that code is law. Although the prevailing argument against that is the law is what was intended, not what, not what is applied. Right. For example, mm -hmm. if you write a smart contract that doesn't intend to give someone, you know, a million dollars in an exploit, then if somebody does get that million dollars, they're effectively breaking that law. Right. They're breaking the intended functionality of the contract. The way that I see it is a little different. Uh, and, and that might be my naivety. You know, I, I don't run a protocol that has billions of dollars in it. So it might be just my viewpoint. But I think it's the similarities between solidity, I think, are closest to something like aeronautical engineering. Right? When you're at NASA and you're building rockets, where any decision that you make has its impacts. And you can't change those impacts in the past, but effectively the decision you make is the law. Right? So if I you know, go for flimsy parts to save costs, if I accidentally miss a panel on a space shuttle and that space shuttle blows up, I can't go back and say this wasn't intended functionality, this was an exploit. No, this was a mistake I made, and now I have to deal with the repercussions of that mistake. Uh, so I think that's the same way that I think of as code is law, where what you write is what gets put on chain. It's what people interact with. And there's that implicit understanding that anything that happens, even if it's beyond the intended functionality, uh, you have to adhere to. I think there is the point of like, what's an exploit versus what is arbitrage? I think exploits specifically to me, at least, are where the functionality that a developer didn't intend for is exploited, right? Where... A good example would be something like the MeBit arbitrage, right? Where the IPFS data was leaked off chain and that was used to have an unfair advantage over the minting process. That is an exploit, right? Mm -hmm. Or if one of these, you know, various Uniswap v2 forks that has, you know, some variables changed or some code flaw is exploited, that's an exploit. Alternatively, for me, arbitrage is a situation where you adhere to the intended functionality of a contract, but you're still able to make a profit out of it. And a good example of that in the NFT world is sort of the punk uh, NFTX MeBit ARB, where for a brief period of time, the NFTX pool that held punks, you could basically redeem a punk 
and claim the free MeBit associated with it and then return the punk. And you could rinse and repeat this multiple times to get free MeBits. Now, one might think, okay, you're exploiting the MeBits contract. And a lot of people did think that. I don't consider that an exploit, though. That's more an arbitrage, right? You're using your information to adhere to the contract, right? The contract said one punk will get one free MeBit. You're not changing that. And for a brief period during that transaction, you did own the punk. So you were the owner and you were doing the rightful action. So I think that's more an arbitrage in the way that I think about it. Yeah, I think I would agree. But I, I feel like, isn't that almost a canonical view in crypto? That, that didn't, didn't you like confirm that you think what, um, that if it breaks the intended behavior of a developer, then it is an expert? That's correct. Uh, although I don't think in the sense of, in, in the sense of code is law, I don't think it's like, uh, the exploit shouldn't be punishable in that sense. Oh, right? it should where, be. Okay. Where if, if something does happen, again, I preface mm -hmm. this with, this might be my naive view, eh, you know, maybe five years down the lane when I'm maybe running a protocol, I'll be like, okay, you know what, whatever I said five years ago, forget that. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the way the code is written um, is the way that it should be executed is the way that there's, there's no aspect of the social law there, right? It's the code is the hard and truth law at the end of the day. Well, that, that doesn't mean that you can't be a white hat though. Right, like I'd consider myself a white hat. If an, a vulnerability came up, I wouldn't be running to exploit it. I'd be running to, you know, hopefully help save those funds. Um, so I think the social aspect comes one layer on top of that, where even if code is law, there's like an implicit social understanding that you choose the decisions you make. Right, the code mm -hmm. might be wrong, but you choose to exploit that code. Right, and you can you can either save the money or you could you know run away with the money. That's your choice. So yeah, you could be governed based on your choices. I don't think you can be governed based on you know the contract and the code. Okay. So if if like as happened like in the last couple of days, a protocol gets hacked and then the attacker um, gets doxed by whatever way. I mean, usually there are like smart people at work trying to figure out who is behind the exploit, and then they threaten to dox someone or threaten with legal action. Um, what do you think about these steps? Do you think that they are valid to take? for protocol developers? Sure. So I think at a high level, protocol developers choosing to go the way of regulation is a potential outcome. I can't speak, I can't say it's a, you know, a guaranteed, I don't know for sure. Um, do I think doxing is a good thing? I don't, I'm, I'm very strictly opposed to doxing. I think it's only a, it's only a negative something where not only does it hurt the project, but it also hurts the people that are involved. Um, and so as minimal doxing as possible, if none really is what I'd advise for. Um, in terms of the law, um, can you get tried for being a black hat? Yes. Right. We've seen that in the conventional world. If you break into your bank, even if the code is the way that they've written it, you will get tried for being someone who broke into a bank. And I think the same thing will eventually apply to, apply to crypto as well. Um, the only added advantage here though, is that, there is the middle ground of being a white hat, of being a gray hat, of being someone that's rewarded for finding these vulnerabilities, right? And in the case mm -hmm. of crypto, you get rewarded far more than you do in the conventional world, right? Like bug bounties for a bank might be in the, you know, five to $10,000 range. Um, like we saw with like the MISO exploit and Sam Cz's son, he got nearly a million dollars, right? As a bounty for that. And, and there's, I think, a lot more incentive where it'll be easier for someone who's, you know, thinking of exploiting a protocol to step back and be like, okay, I can make the correct choice and still walk away with, you know, potentially life-changing amount of money 
and make a good name for myself and whatnot. And I think that's something that's unique to crypto that isn't possible anywhere else. Yeah, 100%. I really, really like um, sort of the size of the back bounties that uh, yeah, projects offer in order to incentivize, you know, honesty. Right. So I think a topic, and this is our last topic of the day, a topic that always comes up like when talking to someone who's really young and already like really experienced and obviously like a super high performer in crypto. How do you learn? It's a good question and you flatter me. Um, I like to say, and I mentioned it before, that I'm the stupidest person at Paradigm. Uh, and I stand by that. I think the easiest way for someone like myself to learn is to surround themselves with super smart people. Uh, and it'll just rub off, right? Just getting to work with the smartest minds in the industry, the smartest minds in a space. You learn from them. You learn the way they do things and you pick up on it. And so that huge motivation for why I'm at Paradigm is to get to learn with you know people I look up to. You know, People like yourself who I get to work with. Uh, on blog posts, on articles, have this conversation Likewise. and get to learn Likewise, from my friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably the easiest way that I learn uh, is to just be surrounded by smart people. And crypto offers that very easily through Twitter um, and you know being accessible Telegram groups where it has never been easier. I don't think there's a single industry where it has been easier to reach out to the smartest people in the space. Um, you know, they're a Twitter DM away. I could not imagine saying the same about, you know, reaching out to an astronaut or reaching out to the president of the United States versus here, I can reach out to the, like, the leader of a multi-billion dollar protocol. And there's a very high likelihood that they'll say, yeah, GM, and then they'll reply to what they, uh, you know, think about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that's something that has also worked for me, I think, in a huge way. I think always trying to be the dumbest person in the room. Um, and if you're no longer, then I think maybe it's time like to move to the next challenge and level up. Right. And I mean, even, even as long as you don't, I think this is probably the case for like most people, uh, well listening at this point, they, 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 they may not have access to all of the people who they want might want to have access to one day, but they can still aspire to. And I think Twitter is such a good way, honestly, um, to you know, yes. you know, feel close to people and almost everybody responds. Like you can tweet at everyone. There's 90% chance you will get a response. Many people even have DMs open. I can only like reiterate exactly what you said. I think it's it's like because Twitter is so prominent in crypto, I think that plays a huge role in how accessible it is and how fast people catch up and how, how fast people learn. So I think this right. is just a like Twitter being the center of the space is just such a huge asset. It's, it's almost like impossible to overstate. Definitely. What skills? What skills do you still want to acquire? Like if you, if you think ahead on like the next one or two years, what skills do you want to acquire that you do not currently have and why? That's a good question. I think things that I want to learn, I can break them into technical and then non-technical almost. On the technical side, I think I'm still very, very novice in terms of even programming. I think I'm surrounded by people that have been programming for decades and I've only been alive, you know, 19 years and there's people that have been coding for longer than that. Uh, so lots to learn from them. I think next on the list is getting deeper into Rust. Um, thankfully to my colleague, uh, Georgios, who's been helping with that. Um, and learning more about zero-knowledge cryptography. I think getting deeper, I think ZK will be huge in the next three to five years, maybe even sooner than that. Um, and so want to learn as much as possible about what's going on there and how I can get involved and stay on top of things. In terms of outside of the technical aspect, I think the thing that I'm still learning and continually working on. The biggest one is learning to say no. Um, I think as a young person, 
what I optimized for was saying yes as much as possible, right? Having as many opportunities, getting as much exposure to everything. The detriment of saying yes to everything, though, is that you can only spend so much time on everything, right? It's like splitting your attention across various things, only taking, you know, very high level understanding of everything. So it's something that I'm slowly learning, you know, how to say no to things. Yeah. Yeah. I think I would definitely mirror that. I think saying no is probably something that like a lot of, like, that's something that a lot of people struggle with to get sucked into this open source world, because right. when it's so easy to inter interface with so many people, then you're constantly getting nerd sniped. Right. And like people act like actively use this <laughs> in order to suck you into like various kinds of projects and, and mm -hmm. discussions. And so for me, I would say like saying no is a big part. Also like maintaining a more healthy work-life balance, I would say. Um, this is something that I've been really trying like last couple of months after like burning out for like the, I don't know, like the how many time, but definitely too often. And uh, it just leads to lower output overall. Like it leads to lower happiness. It leads to lower output overall. When I have like a bunch of projects that I finish 80%. And it's like, it's like literally like a couple of days of like concentrated work to get them over the finish line. But I just bid off too much and, you know, invested too much in like too short a period of time. And then I, I do burn out and then I never finish them. Right. Um, so I think, yeah, that's, that's for me a big one. Um, And I think also can I can always like only repeat like how important sort of the the positive sum mindset is, right? Like playing like really long-term games with long-term people. Twitter is a medium, like as much as we love it, is it's a medium that is also optimized, not only for learning, but also for conflict. Right. And Twitter like really rewards, the Twitter algorithm really rewards whenever two people get in conflict with each other. Mm -hmm. It's almost like it invites everyone you know, who follows both parties, like <laughs> to join the fight and like jump on and rewards it with a lot of attention and rewards you also with like a lot of dopamine and so on. And I think one really has to resist the urge to criticize in public um, and rather like try to find, like exert influence in like more constructive ways and like really resist the urge to dunk on people. Um, for me, that's definitely something that I'm, actively working on you and i both <laughs> and trying to look trying uh, learning to code i think that would be uh, a big level up for me and that that might be something that i, I would really like try very hard in the next 12 months <laughs> okay one last question um you started to, you started programming at 11 you found crypto at like 14 15 whatever um and now we are seeing like more and more very young developers in crypto it's like a it's a complete change almost like from how cryptos used to work like five to six years ago um what do you think about you know this next generation of talent is it is it like is are crypto developers why are crypto developers so much younger than you know developers anywhere else and is this a trend that is go do you think is going to continue or is it ever going to reverse sure First, I'm really glad that there's really young kids who are getting into crypto and are building because uh, it reminds me of myself and where I am still today. And I think it's done a lot of good for me. So I'm sure it can do a lot of good for other people as well. I think the reason why kids are entering is two part. One is the same reason that I entered, right? It's a, it's a way of money that doesn't, isn't, doesn't restrict you to anything, right? And as a kid growing up, getting to spend money is really cool, right? Making money, spending money is fascinating. And 
that's one of the easiest draws for people into crypto is the fact that all of these, you know, 12, 13, 14 year olds now have a way that they can have a wallet on their mobile phone before they even have a bank account. Mm-hmm. And it's programmable money, right? It's like building blocks of you can automate this process. You can automate this sending of money between people, splitting money, et cetera, which is really fascinating. I think the second part of it is that kids have the benefit and the advantage of being so young that they don't know the best practices. They don't know the de facto ways of doing things. And that's really important for something like the blockchain, which is young in and of itself, where the same principles from like the centralized world don't apply, right? You learning database theory in a college class is not going to apply one-to-one to you making smart contracts on Ethereum, right? And smart and writing smart contracts, writing Solidity isn't a class that's taught in college. Um, and that's one of the benefits. I think the folks at Rari Capital, um, they have this phrase neuroplasticity, uh, which is a bit of a meme, but it's like, you know, your, your brain is continuing to grow as you're a kid. And I think that's one of the benefits of kids entering into crypto and building early on is that they learn the new paradigm. Solidity might be some people's first language, right? They will be the blockchain developers because that's all they will know, right? And, and not to say that, you know, past world experience isn't relevant, uh, but the new thinking way, the new paradigm of thinking is also really relevant. Do I think this will keep happening in the future? Yes. I think there will be younger and younger developers. They might not look like what they look like today, right? Today we've got, you know, fantastic 15-year-olds writing Solidity. Maybe five years down the lane, the next language that 15-year-olds are learning is Cairo, right? People doing ZK math at 15. And mm-hmm. uh, I think it'll continue to evolve. But so long as we have an open protocol that allows anyone to participate, I think the window of talented developers will continue to get younger and younger as people are excited about building. It feels like it feels like that it's almost like how much productivity was unlocked for like humanity at large when women started entering the workforce, right? Which was sort right. of socially prevented for a very long time. Um, it's very interesting to think about what could happen if like all of the creativity and neuroplasticity of like the average like 15 year old programmer could also you know start to shaping our world last last explanation i would maybe offer is sort of one that plays off your own story right it's like almost like a selection bias right so if you're a very talented and smart 15 year old where can you even go and make money like it is only crypto like they they all come to crypto because crypto is like the best way right um it's the only way it's the only way yeah um, so yeah, I think, I, I, I think I would second all of what you said. I mean, it's just, I think we will see more and more, uh, young people in crypto. And I mean, this plays so well together with the fact that you don't have to trust them. Right. I mean, sort of the one thing that, that I would say probably about like teenagers, d- definitely about myself at that age is that, you know, they may not be the most reliable, um, right. Right. They may not have the, you know, the, the highest like ethical standards and the high, like the strongest values It's completely natural. You're not like a complete person at that age. Nobody is. But when we're working with smart contracts, then you don't have to trust someone. You you only have to trust like what they put in the code. And I think that's a really beautiful combination. That's a great point. Yeah. Agreed. Anish, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. I had an absolute blast. Are there any closing words uh, or messages for your followers. <laughs> Likewise, thank you, Hasu, for having me. This was fantastic. Uh, I think the only closing message is keep building. And do it open source. 
Oh yeah, that too. <laughs> <laughs> Open source as much as you can so that uh, I can hop in and uh, play around and we can go from there. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thanks, Asif. Take care.